welcome to another episode of DSC's Charity Questions. So today we've got two guests. We've got Richard Zved and Claire Routley, who are the co-authors of our new book, Fundraising Strategy. So welcome to the podcast, Richard and Claire. Richard, if you could just introduce yourself, that'd be great. Thank you. Hello, George. I'm Richard Zved. Uh, I've worked in charities all my life, um, pretty much. Uh, well, all my working life and uh, volunteered back, back when I was a student and, and ever since. Um, I primarily work in fundraising. I've, I've been uh, leading the fundraising function of, I've, I've led the fundraising function for nine national charities now, um, wow. but I also work uh, in governance um, and strategy and communications. Perfect. Great. Thanks, Richard. Nine charities. That's amazing. It's uh, great work. Uh, and Claire, please introduce yourself. So, yeah, I'm Claire. Uh, like Richard, I'm a charity lifer, having accidentally fallen into charity fundraising uh, after university. Um, so, again, like Richard, I've worked across um, a range of different charities. Um, but I suppose I wear multiple hats now, really. So um, I spend quite a bit of my time as a, um, like you, George, as a fundraising teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also work as a consultant specialising particularly in legacy fundraising um, and I spend a bit of the week working um, at the Centre of Philanthropy at uh, the University of Kent. Perfect, great. So is it Kate, do you work with Katie Rabone? Is she uh, familiar with that uh, degree as well? Has she been working in that area? Um, I don't think we've met, although I do have the world's worst memory for... <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. I know that she's also been involved in some sort of degree purposes. Great. So today we're going to talk about fundraising strategy and we're going to talk a little bit about the book, but also kind of how you ended up as authors on this as well. So I know a lot of our listeners, they're going to be wanting to know, I want a fundraising strategy. What do I do? So I'm a new charity. I maybe just recently registered. I have a bank account. Why do I need a fundraising strategy and what would be the first thing I do? Um, I think to get started, um, and really I suppose this is where we start in the book, isn't it, Richard? But uh, by looking at the environment. So we talk about um, the importance of carrying out a, a fundraising audit. Uh, and I think sometimes when you're creating a strategy, the temptation is to jump straight into, OK, what are we going to do? <laughs> the doing bit. But, you know, I always say it is worth taking the time. And actually, probably about you know half of the time in developing your strategy to take a really good look at what's going on, both in the external world, but also to take quite a deep look at your own organisation and think about your own sort of uh, skills, abilities, and weaknesses. Absolutely. Because really, then it means your your strategy is going to be the the most effective strategy going forwards because it's it's built on uh, you know what's going on in the world around you and what your own sort of ability to to do is. Absolutely. So we take a look at ourselves. What kind of thing might we be looking for? Um, I'm looking at, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry to jump in. So I, I, I would say <clears throat> understand your cause. Mm. Um, listen, listen above all else. So listen yeah. to your supporters, yeah. listen to the people you work with. Um, above all, listen to the people um, that you represent and that you, you, you're fundraising for. Um, that that that's the main thing. Understanding your your mission, I would say, um, auditing what's worked from a fundraising perspective, um, understanding and understanding your audiences, and then tailoring messages mm. for those audiences. I think that I think that's mm. if there was any sort of rough order, that would that would be it. I would say. 
I like that. And especially the, the auditing, actually. And so by an audit, do you mean physically looking back at the fundraising that may have happened in the past and the success of that? Is that what mm -hmm. you think? Yeah, absolutely. So how viable has things been? And would you look at maybe specific events that have potentially been run and, and how successful they've been, that kind of level, yeah? Yes, data, data, data. Absolutely. <laughs> both both uh, quantitative and, and qualitative. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it is... It's the same thing I talk about in my training. The voice of the beneficiary is so important. And if we can't put that into place and, and when we're looking for the voice of the beneficiary in terms of funders, would they maybe like videos, written testimonials? What kind of stuff are you looking for for your beneficiaries for their voice? Go on, Claire, you are not. All of, all of the above, really. <laughs> I think you yeah. almost answered your own question there, George. I think, uh, and I think, it, I guess it sort of depends a bit on the on the the, the organisation. Um, you know who your beneficiaries are and how easy it is to to be able to sort of go out and, and talk to them. But I think absolutely, as Richard said, you know, listen using whatever channels there are available to you, really. Absolutely. Great. So let's say on the other side of things then, because again, I know a lot of fundraising managers and CEOs of small charities who are really successful, potentially not knowing why they're successful. And they may mm. be hitting the grindstone every single year, getting the bids in, getting the money in and doing the same thing over and over again. So potentially not necessarily having a strategy. There's probably mm. a strategy in their head, but not necessarily something on paper. What would you yeah. say to these people that would maybe help them to understand why they need a strategy? A strategy? Um, well, the first thing I would say is is brilliant. You you probably you probably do already have a strategy, but yeah. <laughs> it, you need to get it out of your head because, mm. uh, frankly, and I, I wouldn't want to be morbid, but you you may be you may be hit by a bus one day, mm. uh, and and not be able or to just return leave. <laughs> yeah. or just leave. Yeah. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. Probably the preferable um, option. <laughs> um, and, and one of the key points that of our book is, is that. We're, we're not saying stop your fundraising mm. so that you can write a strategy. Mm. What we're saying is you write your strategy based on the fundraising that you're already doing and, and what you could do. I love that. Yeah. So, so don't stop what you're doing. Congratulate yourself uh, and, mm. and think about what you're doing and what you're doing well. Um, so those are the, uh, the main things. But also, um, what about it's it's not just you. you you may be responsible for doing the fundraising work but what about people that are accountable for it like like your trustees how do they how do they know what you're doing and what their role is um okay. uh, and yeah those are those are the main things what do you think claire yeah do you know i i when i was thinking about uh some of the questions we were going to answer in advance i wrote down almost exactly the same as you which is in the sense of uh you do have a strategy, absolutely. And uh, actually, at the beginning of the book, we talk about Henry Mintzberg and um, different ways of characterising strategy. And one of the ways he characterises them is um, just pattern. You mm. kind of fall into a, a pattern of doing things, yeah. um, which is which is almost what you're describing there, George. Mm. But um, but I suppose the other, just to add to Richard's point, I guess, I guess the other thing is, you know, if it's just sort of evolved in that way over time, if it's working for you, brilliant, but actually maybe it's not optimal. And so it is worth taking that time just to step back and say, OK, we've been doing this and it just seems to be working quite well. But could we do things better? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is it. Sometimes you succeed in spite of those things that you're doing that you think may be positives, just getting on with it. But the reality is you step back, take the time. We could be more mm. effective, couldn't we? Yeah. yeah. And what about resistance? I know that there's uh, 
in, in terms of talking to CEOs, sometimes it can be quite hard to get a strategy out of the teams they manage. They might not be directly responsible for the fundraising at an operational level. Um, do you find resistance to strategies? Uh, any, any tips you would give to maybe fundraisers that are struggling to meet the demands of, of building a strategy? There is um, a little... Um, oh, go on, you, you, you sorry, go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <jumping> sorry. Um, <laughs> there is a, just an interesting little story that jumped out to me again when um, I was thinking about this. Um, and again, in the book, what we do is sort of talk about a, a sort of change management process that you can go through. Um, and one of the very first sort of stages of that is just sort of how do you demonstrate the need for change? Mm. Um, and... I don't think we mentioned it in the book, but there's a lovely little story um, that I would credit if I could remember where I've... It's one of those stories you just kind of buzz around in your head, so it's, it's not mine, but uh, right. I can't remember exactly where I read it. But they um, they tell a little story about uh, a commercial organisation that was really resistant to the idea of having a new sort of purchasing policy yeah. um, in place. It sounds really dry and boring, doesn't it, really? Um, but um, what they did to actually sort of show the need to change was... Mm. Um, essentially got a great big pile of gloves and put the price labels on each of these gloves and just dropped them on the boardroom table. And then they said the board members sort of looking through, go, hang on a minute, this glove, which is exactly the same as this glove, cost $1 and this one cost $3 and this one cost $5. So after years and years and years, we're trying to make a rational argument for why they should change. It was actually just dropping all these gloves on the table and mm. people sort of looking through and realising, and you know, just seeing for themselves the disparity. They've got this new sort of purchasing process put in place. Absolutely. So, um, so sort of waffling off on that on that little long story, sometimes it's just thinking about you know how do you sort of show people the the need to change in a you know interesting, different, perhaps dramatic, mm -hmm. <laughs> dramatic way because we don't always respond immediately to the to the sort of the clear and rational argument in the way that you know we'd like to think we do. I love that example, and it could almost be this is what we could have had actually, or this could have been the services we mm. delivered. We could have reached X percentage more people actually if we'd done that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and really sort of showing that to people yeah. again, rather than just, you know, numbering a report. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, there's something else that we we put in the book, um, which is about how you understand and and address disconnect, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we classify it in three different ways and then talk about how you might mitigate those gaps. So the, the first one would be um, that your colleague or, 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 or the person that's resistant to change doesn't get what you're trying to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in which case you might need to think about the information you're providing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, secondly, they might not like it, mm. uh, in which case you need to think about values essentially. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, that they might not trust you or yeah. the organization. Yeah. Um, and then, and this, this is on a, on a very broad level and sounds trite, but but essentially it is it's one of those three things largely yeah, uh, that causes them. resistance. And and with mm. the with the final one, you're talking about relationships mm. and, and repairing mm. those essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a management discussion almost more than a fundraising discussion mm. at that point. Exactly. It? Absolutely. How can we make you see the value of this? What would it look like if we had a mm. fundraising strategy? Those kinds of questions. Great. Um, so kind of looking at the current charity climate, it's, it's from being a uh, fundraising uh, volunteer for a charity called St. Mary's Secret Garden. We were 
unable to deliver our services last year in the way that we were funded to to do that. And and luckily we had reserves, so we were able to um, have that sort of financial resilience there. But there's a lot of organisations that didn't have that uh, resilience. They didn't have those reserves and and probably have now closed down a lot of them. Um, And so thinking about the maybe climate of the moment where potentially it's it's not unheard of now that there may be changes to our services that we weren't expecting. Is there anything we can do in our fundraising strategies to build in financial resilience? I can see you both nodding there. Who wants to take it? <laughs> I'm looking at Richard because I know Richard's got a really good answer to this. Go on, Richard. <laughs> he added it to well, the book. So well, uh, well, well, Claire um, is, is the senior partner in writing this book, so I was always <laughs> expecting Claire to write, answer first. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so I, I don't know if, if you're expecting me to talk about mission versus money matrix, were you, Claire? Because um, that, that's so. yeah. that's yes. Yeah, so, so that's the, the answer that I was going to give when... When I, I, I got a sneak preview of these questions. Um, right. <laughs> so essentially, it's always about diversity of income, uh, even, even more so now. Um, and a very, very simple matrix that I've found useful always, but even, even more so now, uh, is, is dividing your income uh, into whether it's on mission or, or mm. off mission. Um, and whether it makes you money or or needs to be subsidized yeah um and obviously if if it's not making money and it's off mission you you definitely shouldn't be doing it absolutely um but i i would say now more than ever charities need to be thinking about the relationship between things that might not be quite on mission but will make you money Mm. um and things that you you know you want to do and and have to do mm. um that uh, that you all need to subsidize and it, it's the cross relationship between those two uh, yeah. that i would say are the, are the answer that's it and as long as you're considering your objects that seems like a, a nice step to take claire what claire what do you think do you have anything to add to that yeah i think um i mean richard's already mentioned it but um, the idea of diversification as well, because uh, I think that's the one thing that uh, COVID really showed us, wasn't it? Is that you can't really, or ideally don't really desire, uh, rely on one single source of income. And it was people that had a, a good sort of diversified fundraising portfolio that that seemed to um, come out of the, the situation Absolutely. Um, in the better position, really. Yeah, no, you're no, you're right, and it's it's the difficult decision now sometimes as well. Potentially, if you're looking to build an individual campaign, mm. it might cost you money this year to do that. But yeah. the benefits down the line would be that you have that resilience. And perfect. Um, yeah, and so considering now something slightly different, what, what about ethical fundraising? So mm. I talk about it a lot, and but it's become a, a bit more of a, a larger topic the last couple of years. What role does ethical fundraising play? And should we feel entitled to be able to turn down funders that maybe we either don't have the gut feel or objectively just aren't a good fit for our organisation? How how do you feel about that now? Because considering mm. that we need the money more than ever. I think the, the phrase you used about the gut feel is a really interesting one, because I guess it's... Um, it is important to have perhaps, um, I would argue, more of that sort of planned approach to, to ethics in a way so that you're thinking about, OK, and again, you know, we say it in the book, but the one of the things we argue is it's, it's really good you know, before you encounter any of these ethical dilemmas yeah. to think about, you know, what's our sort of core underlying approach to mm. ethics? You know, what's the kind of almost the ethical theory that's going to underpin everything? 
So we draw a lot on the work of um, Ian McQuillan and Rodgare here. Okay. Um, and so you might, for example, have a sort of uh, core sort of underlying approach, which is all about trust. Mm. So, you know, that's, you know, every sort of ethical decision we make, we're thinking about how does this impact on public trust? For yeah. example, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. probably, it's probably not the, um, the very best or the easiest to, to use. Good example, though. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, especially if you um, get money for individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I suppose it, we, we do our best to sort of take some of that gut feeling out. You know, we're trying to be as, uh, as carefully thought through as, as possible. Because I guess, you know, every time we turn down money, that is potentially harmful to our beneficiaries. Although I'm sure you know, there is also the counter argument that taking money from the wrong sources is harmful to our beneficiaries. Yeah. So. It's difficult, isn't it? And so would you consider a policy? Uh, that's what I would sometimes recommend. Mm, oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go on, Richard. Um, I, I was just going to add about my own evolution of, of thinking over the last mm. couple of decades on this. In that yeah. I, when I've been writing policies on this in the past all, all I really thought about in the olden days was was about the funder mm. um you know are they investing in in arms or 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 tobacco or, or whatever and those, those sorts of questions and clearly they're important but what I've really come to realize over the last more recent 10 years is um that it's as much about uh the the, the people you you're fundraising for uh, your mm. your community mm. and mm. and the the values and 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 representing the people uh, who you work with you yeah absolutely uh, just as important as as the funder itself mm. absolutely yeah and and so you would take that into consideration of course in a policy as well yeah that makes a lot of sense and it's something that we all have to consider isn't it and it's always difficult to say no to money but as you say mm creating a problem for another charity actually it's it's one of those decisions yes I, I wrote when you said when when you said um should we turn down that funding mm. my my short answer would have been yes yeah yeah <laughs> um and uh, uh, i know from from my a-level days that I, I need to write longer answers than that um <laughs> so it's probably yes but yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely there's a conversation there and yeah. other partners mm -hmm. and great um so one of my colleagues ricky um uh, she has asked uh, about myths in current fundraising so could, are there any myths you want to bust i have one that i can suggest um mm -hmm. are there any myths you think that fundraisers may share that you want to bust today or, would, or i can suggest one as well yeah I, I'll, I'll start um so credit to caroline danks um, a fellow fundraising consultant who um, who coined this exact phrase, but really really summed up for me uh, one of the myths. Which and she said, "I am not your little black book." Mm. Um, and and so often I, I've come across charities that want to bring people in because of who they know mm. Um, mm. and and their access to them. Absolutely. Um, and and really that that myth needs to be busted because it's not mm. going to work and it's not sustainable yeah absolutely and arguably not ethical having you know, just talked about ethics <laughs> yeah yeah and and i think that that's similar to what we, we boasted actually the idea that you do need to know people to be successful as a new fundraiser 
when that's not necessarily the reality. Um, if you were a new fundraiser and you were joining a role as somebody without the contacts, is there anything you would do if you were in that position and you didn't have those net contacts in your network straight away? Any way you could prospect fundraising information? Um, I think it goes back to our original answer in, to the first question, which was all about listening and, and undertaking that fundraising audit. So mm -hmm. essentially drawing drawing out diagrams and, and working out who who knows whom and, mm. and the connections you've already got as an organisation rather than as a single person. Yeah, absolutely right. There's a, a little story actually that uh, someone who's a new fundraising director at a hospice told me once where they were they were desperate for someone to come and open a fate, I think, you know, one of those type of events anyway. Um, struggled for a while to find somebody and then somebody eventually mentioned, mentioned and I might be misremembering <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. It's been like, you know, my cousin is a premiership footballer or something like that, you know, and it was, and it just sort of showed the value of, you know, you, exactly like Richard said, you know, when you sort of map the networks of yeah. sort of people within your organisation and who knows whom and, um, you know, that you're only seven steps removed from anyone you want to know, um, really, so I think comes true, you know. Yeah. You've, you've probably got a lot of uh, of contacts already that you, you, you know, you just didn't realise. Yeah. And Tara Logan, the American fundraiser, she says we have to be just as focused on the funding of our services as we do the delivery. And that's for everybody, not just the fundraisers. And, yeah. and having that conversation enables people to think, well, how can I build on that? That's so true, isn't it? We do all, all have mm -hmm. a network, don't we? That would be very nice if you did know a fresh Premier League footballer. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> that'd be good, wouldn't it? On my job application, well, I do know a Premier League footballer. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the, what about the, uh, not necessarily the current climate, but kind of fundraising going into the future? We had a great question from Neil McLaren on our Twitter, mm. and he asked, where do you think fundraising will be in, well, two, five, ten years? Um, so let's start two years' time. Where do you think we will be with our fundraising? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll start and then uh, Claire will, will chip in more, mm, more sagely. Um, so I, I would say... Uh, look at the rise of of fundraising from gaming mm. in particular as a as a a growth area mm. um look at hybrid events and and i, I think we'll, we'll we may well talk in the next five ten minutes about digital more mm. um but how how digital fundraising is is changing the landscape essentially and and it will do continue to do so over the next five or ten years um look at crowdfunding um and and donors being part of a movement mm. uh, 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 key areas that i've i've noticed a, a growth in um and but then but then there're also old favorites and and previous cinderellas like um like legacy fundraising and mm. community fundraising they're going to stay important absolutely yeah, yeah. go on Claire yeah I, th I think I kind of went off on a little um tangent slightly when I was thinking about this question partly because uh, um I'm I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment which is called um generations okay. um, it's generations does when you're born shape who you are mm -hmm. um and it's both fascinating and scary in equal measure actually because it talks about I guess this is something that was sort of floating around in the environment anyway but um, it really sort of quantified for me um, uh, millennials and, and generation Z and essentially it talks about um, 
the pressures that, that those people are under and how they're actually um, poorer than their parents' generation at the same age, essentially, with wealth sort of increasingly concentrated amongst older age groups. And I guess so it kind of alludes back to the, the myth-busting question in a way, because I know um, a lot of uh, people, you know, come on courses that I'm involved in and almost sort of sort of say, oh, you know, our, our database is, you know, mm. predominantly aged over 50 and we need to bring in more young people. Yeah. But actually, you know, the, the people that potentially have got money to give away are, you know, the old generations. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I know, you know, there are surveys that say millennials are, you know, incredibly sort of uh, would love to become involved in charities you know and, and, and want to make the world a better place and all of that lovely lovely stuff but they they just don't have the, the spare cash to give away that their their parents absolutely do so I think yeah. that's I think that's a bit of a sort of um I was reading it thinking maybe more in the sort of 10 years frame but it feels like it's a sort of existential crisis mm-hmm. for us as as fundraisers really that if uh, if millennials just literally don't have the money to get involved um, you know, agree, at yeah. that younger age, you know, how is the how are they going to sort of um, they're giving charity evolve over time? Absolutely, mm. and, and, you, and so we've got a bit existential there, but no, no, <laughs> no, you're no. one of my favourite topics, Don Richard. Um, I was just going to add that I, I, I saw a chart last week, um, which which showed that the the amount saved by people mm. in this country has absolutely rocketed mm. since COVID. Yeah. Amazing, um, and it did after after the. 2008 recession as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yes I, I'm sure that they are they are largely older savers mm-hmm. um, yeah. but but there, there's there is lots of money that's currently in 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 people's savings absolutely um yeah. that, that people might might want to donate yeah to charities mm-hmm. but but even even so um I I talked a little bit about crowdfunding and thinking about that next generation uh, and and trends mm-hmm. uh, i'm i'm seeing a, a lot more about donor involvement mm. so so older generations perhaps uh are, are often one step removed from the charity that they're mm. giving uh whereas now uh the younger generations i i think want to be more involved yeah uh so whether it's campaigning or volunteering uh, and and there, there's less of a a wall between between that and donating. Yeah. And and, and if your charity can take advantage of that, yeah. Then, then that might I, think that's I, I guess solve my problem. <laughs> in, in the sense of you know people can't get involved uh, financially at a younger age. Perhaps that's that's how we sort of develop those relationships. Then Richard, you know, people involved exactly. in different ways, and they you know eventually might uh, yeah get more involved in the giving side as well. And Claire, you touched on something that, that I'm a big fan of at the moment, generational theory, um, a similar mm. book, The Fourth Turning, that was written uh, about uh, Gen, what, Gen Y, Gen Z, and they predicted a pandemic of some sorts in this time period. And wow. this is, would be the unravelling, they call it, where we have the responsibility to build the future, actually, mm. of the working world. People like Greta have the responsibility to kind of take forward the world and, and build what it looks like. So, yeah, we, even on a two-year scale, what the work you're doing here and the books like fundraising strategy is potentially shaping this and and i think mm-hmm. richard nailed it yeah if people do want to get involved they may not be able to give money they can give time they can give yeah. ideas a lot of people are doing free fundraisers like sort of social media campaigns without any registered registered governance mm-hmm. or anything. um so there's a lot of positive 
positive change do you do you see a lot of this stuff this kind of just social media campaigns that aren't linked to anything and do you think charities could tap into that in some way it's kind of it isn't it mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely I'm, I'm seeing it all the time um especially from campaigning organizations um who are who are doing this really well mm. um so organizations like uh war and want for example okay um yeah. ask asking people to to get involved whether it's by by signing pledges mm-hmm. or, or whatever but also um but they are also bringing in members at the same time Absolutely. so it's, it's giving it a lower level to show to show your support and affiliation yeah but yeah you can also do stuff yeah. yeah yeah and i guess there's that sort of breakdown isn't there of um that sort of you know the way you do good is to give money to charity actually you know particularly i guess for the younger generations the way you do good is shop sustainably and you know so that that's sort of very clear demarcation between Absolutely. charity and company and i think you know that's that's sort of breaking down as well really isn't it yeah so. that's true yeah which has an impact on charity because it's mm. more less need for, for charities to serve so yeah that's a good point actually Claire. i like that um, so what about uh, any campaigns you've seen that have been really interesting? Any campaigns that during COVID that have been really uh, eye-catching for either of you two? Yeah, I, I can start on this one, Claire. Oh, Richard, yeah. um, <laughs> one I, I liked that I saw recently uh, was not necessarily a, a fundraising campaign, but, but mm. still a campaign I think I, I loved was was from Stu Ryder, Stu yeah. Ryder Care. Um, which was, uh, I think, called Grief Kind. Okay. Um, and it had lots of lots of has lots of advice on mm-hmm. on how to cope with grief and, and bereavement. Um, and within so so talking about things that are, are often often different difficult to talk to mm. squarely within the charity's expertise. Um, and and an ask, but more more subtly within it. Yeah. Uh, so I I just, I just thought that was beautifully mm. done. Um, mm-hmm. It's called called grief kind. Grief do, kind. Do have a look. Nice. We will. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure the listeners will be googling that now. Yeah. What about you, Claire? Have you seen any? Um, I suppose as well. Not so much a a campaign, but I was thinking of what sort of really impressed me. And um, one of the sort of approaches to fundraising I've seen that just um, I think has been fantastic and perhaps you don't seem to see talked about that much is um the approach that uh, christians against poverty have okay um and essentially i was i was really impressed with it because they they break down the silos between fundraising and service delivery mm. so um essentially what they do is they you know they in a christian organization they do a lot of work with churches um and they sort of set up their, their sort of debt counselling services within within a church but then they say to the church you know we need to be able to sort of come and talk to your congregation about regular giving mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, yeah. they also as far as I know um, when they negotiate debt arrangements on behalf of clients yeah. um, the, the the corporates need to sort of give a donation back at, mm-hmm. at that point as well mm-hmm. um, I'm sure there's lots of other lovely things they do, but what what really impressed me about their approach is that there's a sense of sort of organic growth between services and fundraising. Okay. So as their services grow, you know, they do more and more work, but actually their fundraising grows um, almost quite naturally alongside mm-hmm. it. 
Um, and it just, you know, so often the, the when we work with organisations, one of the big problems we come across is this sense of siloing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, fundraising happens over here and service delivery happens over here. And, okay, occasionally there's conversations when we're putting in grant applications, but, you know, near the twain shall meet otherwise. And I just thought it was, it was amazing that you have this sort of um, organic relationship between the two and I think um, you know organizations that can break down those internal silos I think uh, you know really well positioned to to move forwards. Absolutely and that links all the way back then to the trustees being engaged and mm-hmm. I remember the CEO at the charity I was a trustee of she would make a really big point every time to go through the projects and the fundraising and it takes yeah. you a few meetings to catch up to it but then you expect it and you know it and if people asked you you would actually understand which is vital isn't it again how can we link that up I like that it's really nice Mm. you see more organizations considering that step now and thinking about that actively yeah um, I mean one of the books we talk one of the things we talk about in the book is um a much more sort of agile approach Mm. (laughs) probably with a big a and a small a (laughs) yeah it's it's, that's hard Um, it's easy to say hard to necessarily do isn't it yeah yeah because it's essentially a fundamental restructuring I suppose if you do it with a big a it's a fundamental restructuring of your um um, you know, perhaps even the entire organisation, but Hierarchy, definitely the, the yeah. fundraising yeah. side of it. So. Yeah, yeah. What might it look like when someone had restructured? What might that team look like? Um, so again, I think there's there's a sort of there's a kind of methodology that you can follow there. Again, if you're um, going for agile with the with the yeah. big A, <laughs> with um, like. the idea of again, sort of, I, I, I guess um, I, I kind of alluded to that because of the breaking down of silos, and I think that's yeah. one of the things it sort of aims to do. So the idea that you've got people, they don't have your sort of legacy fundraiser and your community fundraiser, you've got sort of uh, interdisciplinary teams for oh, okay. Great. a better term. So yeah, the idea that you're you're breaking down, almost sort of again naturally breaking down some of those uh, internal silos in an organisation. I like that. I like that. Go on, Richard. No, I, I, I was, I, I was thinking about fundraisers' careers uh, and the fact that we, we have kind of broken, put people in in boxes over the years, mm. uh, and actually, <clears throat> any type of fundraising is is about building relationships with people, yeah. uh, and those those are transferable skills, absolutely uh, ac- ac- across across types of fundraising and 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 so yeah we i'd love to to get get people out of out of boxes mm. and, and and learning from each other essentially yeah. definitely i like that yeah. i like that so i think this alludes to something i wanted to talk about we will come back to some digital because i want to to talk about that but actually mm. new fundraisers qualifications claire you're obviously very well qualified mm. in this area what could you let's say i'm a new fundraiser i want to start yeah. out and i'm just finishing college and i'm going to go to university you said that we should be looking to be wide and approach fundraising from the wide perspective that's great what would you recommend i do if i wanted to become qualified as a fundraiser um, go on, claire. partly it's about thinking about you know what works for you personally in terms of your learning Absolutely. Rather than necessarily there being, you know, the the perfect route. Um, uh, I mean, you mentioned university, but interestingly, there's uh, a whole range of um, apprenticeships coming down the line um, at the moment. So that, I mean, they can be, as far as I'm aware, taken by people who are, you know, do have an, a, a degree, but also it's a sort of alternative route for people that, you know, don't necessarily want to to go to university. So yeah. that's um, increasingly going to be an option, I think. Yeah. Um, and then there are uh, fundraising 
qualifications, you know, certificates, diplomas that are offered by um, Chartered Initiative Fundraising. Um, we but can also now say the, that, can't we? Can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, a range of courses at DSC. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Um, um, and, you know, for those who do like the sort of the more academic angle as well, there's, um, you know, a couple of organisations, and I have to say, you know, including uh, the University of Kent, where I, where I teach off uh, master's level qualifications as well. So there's, uh, um, you know, there's, there's something out there for everybody, really, I think, um, depending on what, you, you know, what your, your aims are, what, how you enjoy learning. Yeah. And are you able to share what some of your maybe master's students have gone on to do? Is there any good examples there of what they've gone on to do? Um, I mean, a lot of the, the, the students that, that come through the master's programme at Kent, I think, are already, you know, working as fundraisers or sometimes things like wealth advisors as well. It's not sort of, uh, you know, yeah. it's not purely uh, um, fundraisers. Um, I think across all the courses I teach, though, what is quite interesting is, you know, people do quite often tend to move to the next level, even if that wasn't necessarily their intention when they started the course. You know, they might have just come to the course because they wanted to you know, consolidate some of the knowledge they already have, for example. Yeah. But I think there is something about, you know, taking a course and learning and improving your skills, which just mm. sometimes gives you the nudge to, um, you know, step up in the the next level in your in your career really because you just want the challenge actually you know you've, you've enjoyed learning and taking on new skills and you want to really sort of put them into practice so you know we do see a lot of people step up in their careers Absolutely. Mm. yeah and there's, there's there's qualifications that that claire's talked about and there's there's training like 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 mm -hmm. like the the courses that are provided by dsc and others mm -hmm. um i i think it's it's um, it, it might be harder as, as a provider of training, but it's great as a, as a recipient. I, I think the choice has never been never been greater with with yeah. with uh, providers like like DSC, but also um, on online providers like um, Fundraising Everywhere, yeah. um, IFC, and so on. Uh, yeah. And actually, that that democratization, mm. if you like, has has accelerated because of because of the pandemic. Absolutely, yeah. that it, it's much easier now to to open your laptop and and learn stuff mm. um and in, in terms of careers and emerging leaders a, a, a shout out also to the the claw social leadership oh yeah uh, program which is worth a look perfect the claw social leadership program i've not heard of that mm. I'll have to check that out and definitely yeah big fans of fundraising everywhere simon uh, is, is a great leader of that organization along with his colleague and yeah they've done great work there and almost it's unbelievable they did it before the pandemic and how suddenly it, they was almost best suited weren't they to, to support mm -hmm. us during that time they did a lot of great work over the last couple of years um so what about your looking back at your careers knowing what you know mm. now would either of you make any changes to your careers go on clay you go first <laughs> Uh, do you know, one of the things I think I would get better at is, um, I don't know if this is the best term, but sort of the, the almost the internal politics side of things. Um, I've never been much of a sort of, again, for want of a better term, sort of political animal. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, uh, but actually the more I've gone on, the more I've realised, you know, it's not just about sort of fundraising externally, it's about being able to sort of manage the internal situation in which you're fundraising you know and as we sort of alluded to when we talked about uh, organizational change it almost feels now that you you kind of need you've got your external facing strategy but you almost need a sort of mirror internal <laughs> strategy to you know to get people on board to bring people along with you, you know all of that that really good stuff and I think that was something that just never really uh, crossed my mind very much mm. in the, the the sort of the early stages of of my career but I think uh, especially as you um, get more senior and you have to 
um, be an advocate for other people. You know, you have to potentially be, a, be an advocate for your fundraising team. You need to be able to sort of manage that, those sort of uh, internal issues. So I think that's something I wish I was a bit, a bit more alive to yeah. Uh, yeah. earlier on. Definitely, definitely. Well, what about you, Richard? Uh, so, so my answer is, is one thing that um, I didn't do soon enough um, yeah. and one thing that I think I did too soon. Okay. Um, um, so the thing I didn't do soon enough uh, was uh, mentoring and, and being mentored. Okay, yeah. Um, and and I, I, I first became a mentee um, of, of, of having been in, in, in um, the charity sector for 10 years and I should have started sooner because I, I benefited so much from that. Mm. Uh, and then the last 10 years or so, I've, I've loved being a mentor too uh, for, for so many reasons, uh, not least that, that I, I benefit from it mm. at the same time. And I, I think it's, it's never too early to start mentoring I like that. Uh, so, so a shout, a shout out to mentoring and being being mentored. Mm. Um, and the thing I think I did too soon um, was going into. I, I did a master's um, in in voluntary sector organisation um, quite soon after. Um, quite soon after after I I graduated and and as I as I moved into the sector really as a as a professional okay. um, and. Really, I, I wish I'd waited because because um, I've learned so much over the years, over the last mm. five, 10, 15, 20 years mm. uh, about what, what works. Um, and I, I, I would love to have applied that that mm. learning now mm. um, rather than rather than as a, as a very recent graduate. Such a good PhD, Richard. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> And Claire, you've done a PhD. Can you just let the listeners know what your PhD is in? Oh, my, my PhD is in uh, legacies and why people leave uh, legacies to, to charity. Amazing. And what made you do that? Uh, I think I just loved learning, actually. So um, I did some, I'm sure my age here, because there wasn't really much uh, of a fundraising qualification structure. Um, so I did marketing qualifications yeah, yeah. part-time whilst I was, uh, whilst I was a starting out as a fundraiser and then just yeah. really loved studying so I just uh, I wanted to carry on <laughs> so it was my it was my slightly nerdy hobby I have to have to admit <laughs> it's, all good. it's definitely not my hobby Claire sorry that's <laughs> <laughs> no, very amazing it's great it's a great qualification yeah go ahead did you have anything to add Richard um no I, th I think I think I think we, we've done that question George all good <laughs> um, so just to circle back then, let's pick up on the digital tech uh, point then. So we've mm. mentioned crowdfunding and, and the kind of the future a little bit. Um, I'm thinking of things like Facebook donations, Smile.Amazon. Uh, what mm. kind of wacky digital future of fundraising things are there out there that uh, when we're doing our strategy, we could at least be considering, even if it's something we're not doing straight away? Mm. What's the um, so so in, term, in terms of the, the digital era, I would say that the advancements have, have really meant that we can going back to the the fundraising audit uh, answer that we gave right at the beginning really enable us to slice and dice our data in, in ways that we were never able to before mm. um and it's it's now much easier to get time with people but most importantly um it's really it's really going to enable charities to enhance their responsiveness to 
to supporter experience. Mm. So I remember a long time ago, all, all I could do really was uh, check a box that said, no, they don't want to receive a newsletter. Mm. Or yes, they they only want to hear from us once a year. Mm. Um, and now we can really, really be so much more responsive yeah. uh, than that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about wacky, George, but um, in, ter in terms of um, uh, digital fundraising strategies, digital technology informing fundraising strategies, um, it, it's definitely worth watching um, Facebook challenges, for example. Um, interestingly, uh, we're we're going to I think we're going to wrestle with issues of of control more and more because because uh, these things aren't happening on our on our platforms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they they can still be we can, we can still give a, a strong user experience. Um, but uh, it, we we need to watch how how we how we give that experience because we're mm. not entirely in control of of how we run it. I would say. I like that, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, just be mindful of that. Anything anything else on digital tech? Um, actually, going with the book when you had our first reviews back um, from our uh, external reviewers, somebody pointed out why you're not talking about AI. So we had a little dip mm -hmm. into um, what AI is likely to mean for fundraising. So, um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm really glad that they pointed that out because actually there was, um, you know, some really fascinating info that we dug out. And it kind of relates to what Richard was saying about almost the, you know, the database and the background and what's happening in the background. Yeah. But what I loved was the idea that, you know, AI can actually be doing um, a lot in the background. So it was saying, for example, it could be um, AI could be pointing out that, you know, these donors might benefit from a phone call at this point. Mm. Um but actually, what it means then is from the donor experience point of view, again, which you know, which was leading to, but um, the actual interaction feels much more human because actually yeah. it's a, you know it's a human being taking time to to call you and to build that relationship. But you know, there's there's essentially sort of tech working away in the background to um, to flag that you know those that, are the yeah. people that, that might need to be spoken to. So I thought that was lovely, actually, the idea that AI could be working to to help us create much more of a sort of human experience for our for our donors. So true, isn't it? And it's again, we have all this data and we collect all this data, but actually, once you've collected the data, maybe an AI is better than we are actually analysing it and judging the best route. Yeah. For it. Just depends on the the one we use. Great. Um, yeah, and we can spend our time in, you know, as Richard said, that real core fundraising skill of building those relationships. So, absolutely. Yeah, and it's still a person that picks it up. You're not sending a message from the robot yeah. or anything. It's really powerful, yeah. isn't it? So, the book then, the fundraising strategy book. Um, look, a couple of questions. What motivated you to, to work together? I'm sure DSC hunted you down a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, how did this happen? How did you end up working on the book together? <laughs> We've worked on a few things together in the past, haven't we, Richard? We have. We, we trust each other. Um, we, we've worked um, uh, as, as, as freelancers um, together on, on a range of projects and also delivered training together and, mm. and know that it's a, a shared passion. I've been banging on about fundraising strategy for a, a good 10, 15 years. Yeah. Great. Great. And so where can people get their hands on the book? Well, this book. Absolutely. <laughs> well compared, Richard. <laughs> um, so it's it's available on the DSC website, obviously. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, am I allowed to mention other retailers? Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's it's available on the Waterstones website, I believe, and also Amazon. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
anywhere books should be it should be absolutely exactly great so thank you so much for for joining us today and answering some of the questions from our from our listeners and of course thank you for for the book and presenting that and uh, i'm getting through it at the moment and a big support for me i talk a lot about fundraising strategy and having the opportunity to learn in that way is is really nice and i think when we're talking about supporting people our motto is helping you to help others the book is a really cost-effective way to get started, actually. And if you are sat there listening to this thinking, gosh, I need to think about my strategy, maybe your first port of call is the book. It is to have a look at how we do this and to take the time in your own way to, to get through this. So thank you so much, Claire and Richard. And if people wanted to contact either of you, how would they uh, how would they get your details? Or how could they reach out to you? Go on, Claire, first, and then Richard. Uh, I'm available on most social media platforms. <laughs> yeah. uh, or you can email me at uh, claire at legacyfundraising.co.uk. Perfect. Thanks, Claire. Uh, and um, so, yes, uh, I'm on Twitter as at Richard Sved. Yeah. So just my, my full name as, as one word. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, those, are, those are probably the easiest ways. Or just Google me and you'll find where else I am. Great. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Claire. Well, we'll close the podcast there. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you for watching Charity Questions by the Directory of Social Change. So this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media. So if you want to get involved, please check out the Directory of Social Change on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, to hear more about this content and to learn more about Charity Questions, subscribe to our YouTube channel now and of course, like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for watching. Cheers. <laughs>